Welcome to Inside the Founder Studio. We're a podcast dedicated to uncovering the grit that make founders, entrepreneurs, and innovative thinkers tick in one of the most crucial industries on the planet, supply chain. To learn more, you can check us out at InsideTheFounderStudio.com. But for now, let's hand it to our host, Ryan Schreiber. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Inside the Founder Studio. I'm Ryan Schreiber. And today I'm joined by Greg Price. Greg is the founder and CEO of Shipwell. I first learned about Shipwell in about 2017, 2018. Y'all signed a large meal kit delivery company. I won't say who they are, but uh, they were a client for me in my last startup. And they said, hey, have you heard of the Shipwell company? I started checking you guys out back then, probably was 2018. Today, Shipwell, you're a full SaaS TMS, right? And core thesis kind of bringing together that TMS functionality, visibility, and like that integrated partner network. And you're bringing that to both shippers and brokers to like really change their business. You kind of described it as this, like you're building the nodes and allowing people to use that to improve their business, but also they can build on their own when they need kind of that customs process. So you're kind of that core execution piece. Is that a good way to describe it? Yeah, no, thanks, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor. Thank you so much for setting this up. So I'm actually the co-founder. So Jason Traff is my co-founder. Yeah, uh, I should have said co-founder. That's yeah, true. We In 2017, we started Shipwell. So Shipwell is a vertically integrated technology business. So we've got a traditional a platform. And we, for the industry term, it's a transportation management system. But it does everything from customer order all the way through reconciliation in the whole life cycle of the execution of transportation. And then we have our own integrated visibility, so we can go all the way down to the hard metal itself. And then an integrated partner network where people source and find capacity, or they might use Shipwell to manage that service for them. And so we built it in such a way that you can use something out of the box that's going to give you best-in-class performance and that will grow and scale with you to the billions of dollars of transportation. And some of our customers are some of the largest and most recognized brands in the world. But we have our first customer was actually a small 3PL that has grown dramatically. And they've managed their customers' transportation on our system. And we view Shipwell, can we be this digital fabric that provides execution, automation, and intelligence to the supply chain? And so I think my hypotheses were... The problems with supply chain is there are no standards. EDI isn't a standard. In fact, it's one of the biggest banks that it's we have. The, I mean, it's the biggest, if you ask me, but nobody wants my opinion on this. I, I mean, we have to connect 90 of them every time we do a new customer. And it's always, or at least... God forbid your customer makes a change on the other side, too. Yeah, so the standardization, it's people are snowflakes. Like, shippers might be snowflakes or think their business is a snowflake. And what they want to do is they want to get a competitive advantage and win, make smarter decisions faster. and. Typically, information has been opaque. There is no trust in supply chain. And you need all of these parties to really synchronize with each other to unlock that efficiency that's not being unlocked. And so at Shipwell, we wanted to build incredible trust and transparency. We wanted to knock down these barriers, connect everyone. And so we designed our platform, our systems, our product, our services to do just that. We reached this role now where we've got our first customer, which was a big water customer, now, they're using our platform to source and find capacity. And then their 3PL now is also using our platform. So now we've got multiple tenants in our platform that can trade with each other all to synchronize their supply chain. And that's a beautiful thing. 
that lowers costs, that increases ROI, it increases collaboration and trade, and it unlocks efficiency. And that's my view of the world is supply chains are a network of networks. And so can we actually hook all of these networks together and build the future of supply chain? And I kind of liken it to the sales force of freight in a way where you create this foundational layer and then open up this ecosystem that really enhances the value of those layers. That's what we're shooting for. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get into more of this later, but anybody who knows anything about me knows that I hate TMSs. Like, and I think TMS... I think TMS is the biggest technology problem that we have in our industry. I have a couple of reasons for that. And one of them is sort of philosophical. But the other one is that they're big, these blockers to innovation, right? Like if you go to many TMS providers, they won't play nicely with others because they, they have this territorial approach. And one of the things that I've liked about you guys is as you describe sort of this, this Salesforce approach of creating this ecosystem Right, it's like let's just play nice with everybody, and if somebody can build something that's better than us that does this thing, it behooves us to not get disrupted at the end of the day by playing nicely with them in a lot of respects. So I'm sure we'll get into some of that, but go ahead. Absolutely. I mean, one prime example of this is there are providers that have entire account management or accounting systems, and we made the say there are many good financial management systems: QuickBooks, NetSuite, Dynamics. Sage, there are many of them, and we're going to just create a normalization layer and allow you to plug into whoever and give you the APIs in the cloud to be able to automate the experience. Because what you're really asking for is how do we automate settlement and make sure that there's less error in our billing process? And we didn't feel like we were going to be able to do that as a startup that was trying to change the space. We want to focus on the core elements of connectivity, automation, execution, not building rebuilding a cruel accounting system. I love that. I love that thought too, because it does kind of get to understanding what your customers actually need or what your company needs to be to be better and different. And we'll talk about one of the things you brought up uh, in prep is this idea of being afraid to say no or not being afraid to say no. And I think that that's really smart and really important. And it's understanding like, look, what's the problem we're trying to solve here? Customers want this without that. Customers want better results. They want better predictability or, and fewer errors without their people having to go to five or six different systems. Like I talk about UI proliferation being, the, being a problem. People don't necessarily need one system, meaning that one piece of software does everything from, you know, does the accounting by itself, does the accruals, does the order intake, whatever. What they need, right? They want a one system feel. I don't want my users to have to go to 15 or 20 different places and those are things that I've certainly talked about and, and that touch on what Shipwell is today. So certainly excited to talk to you about Shipwell. And I wanted, I'm excited to talk to you about, about you. As I kind of laid out for you and people who have listened to this podcast, this is one of, still one of the first episodes. We've had a few folks recorded for a few. So everybody's still kind of getting to know what this is going to be. I want to talk about the successes, failures, or success that you've had in your life. I want to talk about the success of Shipwell. I want to kind of touch on the concept of failure and the old sports analogy of like you learn more from losing than you do from winning and, and imposter syndrome are things that I kind of want to touch on. And I look at this as an opportunity to learn from people. I know how I've dealt with those things in my life, but I want to learn from other folks kind of how they've done that. So thanks for sharing a little bit of your time with this today. Let's start by telling me a little bit about how'd you grow up? Where'd you grow up? What that was like? Give me some of that stuff. Yeah. So I grew up, I was born actually in Victoria, Texas, a small town, born to a blue-collar family. We moved to Houston, Texas, where I really spent my formative years. 
and had a pretty normal upbringing. I was really into sports. And if you ask me when I was two, what I wanted to do, I actually have a book when I wrote when I was in the second grade. So I guess I'd be around seven then. Who did I want to be when I grew up? I wrote Deion Sanders yeah. in Buckaroo Banzai. And so that did my I don't day. know who Buckaroo Banzai is, but. Well, Buckaroo Banzai, Across the Eighth Dimension, it's a movie. It had Peter Weller, and it was an 80s movie. And he's a neuroscientist, a neurosurgeon, scientist, adventurer, musician. And he battled aliens through across the eighth dimension. <laughs> An awesome eighties movies. Check it out. But that's who I wanted. Yeah. To be. I wanted to be this enigmatic person who is basically good at everything and and had amazing adventures. But my ambition far outweighed my talent. I was a high school athlete and did all that and went to UT and playing soccer there. And I was actually liberal arts undeclared. Didn't know what I wanted to do with myself and. After a semester, I really, I love, you know, I'm a dreamer and a builder. I love science. And I decided I wanted to go into electrical engineering. It was the hardest thing. I was like, what's the hardest thing I could do? And what's the thing that's going to be able to give me the most flexibility? And so that was electrical engineering. And so my counselor, much to her chagrin, I basically went into electrical engineering. And I ended up graduating at the top of my class in electrical engineering, but I really had to work at the same time, which was what made it incredibly difficult. You know, came from really simple beginnings. So I was actually a waiter at a company called Papados, which is a, it's a Cajun seafood restaurant, but it's owned by the Harris family. And it's one of the largest private restaurants in North America. And that was kind of my first foray into customer service and operations. A fun stat, I think they're the single largest purchasers of brown shrimp in the world or something like that. I didn't uh, know there were different time. colors of shrimp. So yeah, what I know. And at the time, you know, I was doing that. I worked, I figured out to maximize my time, I could work Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday morning. And that would maximize my time for how much money I made while going to school. And so that's where I spent my formative years. And then at the time, I decided to... I wanted to get out of Texas and experience other parts of the US. And I had a vision that I wanted to go to Boston, I wanted to go to MIT, and I wanted to start a business. And those are my two goals. And I'm, it's going to take me three years to do that. And what, what was a three-year plan turned into 10 years because I was newly married. I met my wife and in college. We moved up to Boston together and started a life. And I was working for MIT at the time. So I was doing hardware, software, machine learning, data science for the US military and other folks. And I was just enjoying living in a brand new culture and learning how to deal with the snow and, and really building really cool things and being newly married and just enjoying every element of that. As a person who moved from the Sun Belt, right from the South to like the place where it snows a lot, most people looked at me like I was crazy. So I certainly know. And you might be the first, you might be the first, te- now that I live in Texas, this is even more true. But you may be the first Texan, I think, in of the history of Texas who's thought about leaving, period, let alone to go someplace where it snows. <laughs> That's true. It, I loved living in Boston. I picked up hockey. I picked up snowboarding. And Boston has a charm when it's summer and you see the different seasons. I mean, Texas has hot and not hot as a season. Although it did snow here like two weeks ago. It did. We built a snowman in the yard. Kids love that. And so I love Boston for that. I love the cultural heterogeneity. I love just being part of the MIT ecosystem and being part of that 
that technology system and that innovation. And while I was working at MIT, I actually met some other MIT guys and decided to start a wearable startup in 2009 before wearables are wearables. So we actually... Well, I mean, we always had the slap bracelets. Does that not count? We had, we had the slap bracelets, which basically was the idea of the startup. Create a moon ring slap bracelet, which basically measured stress and anxiety. So you know your way... Oh, like Aura? It was way before Aura. It's, and you can look at... I like that, but that's like kind of what you were going for. Very for. similar. Yeah. Very similar in that... It was, it measured stress and anxiety. So it actually measured your autonomic nervous system, like that fight or flight response. And we could tell you if you were getting nervous and if you were starting to go to a big meeting or, or something like that. And the idea was, could we predict things like PTSD or stress or things of that nature really help you lower the cortisol levels to increase your overall health? Way before our time, that got founded, as that was getting funded by Peter Thiel and some other folks, I decided to go to MIT and do my, my master's in engineering and my MBA at the same time as part of the Leaders for Global Operations program. And it's a great deal that you paid for half of the cost of that. And you get to work with amazing professors and people to really understand everything about operations. That was really where I learned about supply chain for the first time. I mean, most people, they show up to the grocery store and they see bananas on the shelf and they don't think about, well... You know, there's a farm in Chile, and then it's got to go to a small truck to DC, and then it gets put in a refrigerated boat, and then it goes slow boat to the port of the LA or wherever, and then it gets, you know, dray to here, and then it gets broken up to here. And this huge orchestration for you to get fresh bananas in the middle of Cincinnati, Ohio, right? You don't think about that. And MIT, that's where part of the operations program, we were going into Amazon's largest distribution center, Caterpillar. GE, GM, a host, um, Novartis, a host of other different companies that are massive and looking at their operations and learning all about it. That's where I learned about supply chain. I was still uh, an engineer, an electrical engineer and a machine learning guy. And I was like, the last thing I want to do is actually be part of supply chain. I just think when I left, I was like, what should I do? I'm a technical person. So I decided to go to McKinsey and Company. What better way can you get a business degree and business acumen by going to the preeminent consulting company in the world? So I went there and I was part of their operations and advanced analytics practice. And that's where I got thrown just face first into actually how supply chains are run. And I remember this distinctly. It was in Houston, one of the largest oil and gas service providers in the world. They spend like $3 billion a year on transportation and supply chain. Although I don't know how they pull that number together because I couldn't get them to pull together a spend cube to save their life. So I don't know how they report that to the street, but they probably like they pick up a piece of grass and throw it like when you're playing golf, right? You just kind of like, all right, I think the wind's basically going that way. (laughs) It's like more or less 3 billion. So that's where I learned about everything from ocean, air, rail, planes, trains, and automobiles. And I learned how just utterly inefficient and how challenging supply chain really is given the tools, the people, and and the different systems. And I did oil and gas, I did retail, grocery, and all of these, and I ran into the same problem everywhere. Medical products, I kept seeing the same problems. The data was bad, they've grown by acquisition, so all the systems are 20 years old, they're running on 50-year-old communication technology, and here's an oil rig burning a million dollars a minute and you don't know where an O-ring is from Arkansas, like there's a problem. Like Amazon, something in the back of your car with OnStar. So there's this huge capability gap between 
people that invested in operations, supply chain as a competitive advantage, and those where it's just a cost center where you hire a bunch of hammers and the world is a nail where without cost, right? And that's your strategy. And so I saw these supply chains being really optimized for cost and for service levels and less for the customer experience and flexibility and the ability to be disrupted. Even when they were their own customer. I mean, kind of what you're saying, right? I mean, like even when they're their own customer, Mm -hmm. they're feeling that pain, but they're not willing to spend the money to make the money kind of thing, which I think anybody who's been on this side of the desk has seen certainly like probably most of the people who are going to listen to this podcast are transportation providers or folks. They felt that pain for sure. And uh, definitely a good observation. Go ahead. Yeah. And and so this was my first foray into into supply chain. And I looked at a bunch of them and there were, I just kept seeing the same problems over and over again. So I thought, could I bring massive connectivity and my background in machine learning and automation to supply chain and then help level up the decisions that are being made at the front line? I mean, transportation, it's the number one job in 29 states. It's a $1 trillion industry just in terms of spend. So like the U.S. has around $20 trillion in GDP. Like that's 5% of GDP, which is absolutely insane to think about how big of an industry. So I was at McKinsey. I was traveling Monday through Thursday, and my wife is also an executive. So And I saw this opportunity, so I left McKinsey, and I wrote checks out of my 401k to start Shipwell to go solve these challenges. Let me slow you down for a second because, you know, I think – before you get into like these big risks, one thing that I think is really interesting, as I just listened to you tell your background and your story, you're an impressive guy. You've done impressive things. You're obviously very smart. Anybody who could listen, just listens to you talk can hear that. And you've had an impressive educational background. But buried in that, you said, look, I came from this like blue collar upbringing, right? Like I had to work my way through college. And I think that's really interesting. My observation, one of the things that I want to learn about through this podcast, my observation is that it's easy to look at people who are successful and see their headwind, or excuse me, see their tailwinds and say, well, of course it was easy for Greg because he worked at McKinsey, or of course it was easy for Greg because, but like, let's talk about your tailwind or your headwinds for a second. Like, so first, I mean, obviously it's not like you could call up mom and dad and be like, hey, I need a $10 million check to go start Shipwell, or I even need a $10,000 $10,000 check to go start Shipwell. There had to have been, from your perspective, kind of a other, even before you got to make that decision, to pull that trigger, to go to Shipwell and say, we're going to take this leap and it's going to be scary. I don't know that it's going to be successful. You know, Even before that, what are some of these kind of headwinds as you look back on that part of your life to say, I had to overcome this or I had to come through that, even though I was born very smart and I had this internal motivation. Go ahead. Well, I always say that success is like an iceberg. Have you ever seen this picture? Like an iceberg? And it really is true. Like only, the only thing people see is that, that what's above the water. And when you think about it, they see that success. But what's underneath the water, far underneath the water, are things like hard work, persistence, rejection, sacrifice, criticism, doubt, failure, and risk. Like they don't see all of those things. And I'm happy to chat through all of those things because I've experienced all of them. So I was never the smartest. I was never the biggest, the fastest, or the best looking, but outwork anyone. You're a pretty good looking guy. Yeah, I don't know. I would outwork anyone in the room. I really would. And I, I liken it to when I was playing Texas football, which is 
football in Texas is a big deal, right? And I we got away with bloody murder. And I won't spend the time on this podcast to tell you some of the stuff that we got away with in high school. But that was the first time where I was working with a group of men and people to for a common goal to go achieve something that was bigger than just myself. And it taught me lots of things. It taught me no matter how hard I work, there's always going to be someone bigger, stronger, and faster, and you're going to get your butt kicked over there, despite the fact that you gave it your all. And that happened all the time. I played football against people that have won the Super Bowl, and they were just God-given man among men, or man among men. And I gave my all, but they just still bested me every game. And so that was really my first foray. And when I left to go to college, I left, went from Houston to Austin. I moved in one weekend, and it was you have to take out loans. We can't help you. Like I lost my father when I was 10 and, you know, I had, you know, step, that's step a headwind me. for sure. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, you lose someone really formative and my mom was a nurse. My stepfather was a mechanic and they just didn't have it. Like, I'm sorry, we just don't have it. Uh, you're going to have to go take out loans and figure it out. And so I've always taken upon myself to, I can't blame anyone else for the situation that I'm in. They're giving it their best. And I've really got to take it upon myself to go achieve. I was a liberal arts undeclared. I mean, yes, I had good... At the time, there was something called the top 10% rule in Texas, where if you if you were in the top 10% of your class, you basically could get into a public Texas university. And I skated through high school, didn't really try with an athlete, and barely made it in by the skin of my teeth, barely. And I was a liberal arts undeclared, didn't know, didn't know what I want to do with myself. And I had people along the way saying, I don't think you're smart enough to go into electrical engineering and do that. And I mean, Texas at the time was super expensive, you know, at the time is early 2000s. And so I had zero. So I took out loans and I also was a waiter. So those things like you chip away at it and I gave up. That's the part, the sacrifice part. I sacrificed part of my college fund to go and have to work while I was putting myself through school to do this work. And then the next thing was, well, I want to go to MIT and I want to start a business. Oh, that's impossible to do. You definitely don't have the pedigree for that. You're not coming from these Ivy Leagues. You're not doing these other things. And I'm like, okay, we will see. I've always had this kind of like chip on my shoulder, we will see type mentality. So I met this beautiful girl and in college. It was amazing. And we moved up to Boston together. And that and started a life there. And we both focused and spent our time on building an early career. And we were in decent jobs. I was a software guy and she was a kind of a, an early analyst and kind of had a meteoric rise there. And we just did the slow, steady, simple thing. Started to make good decisions. We shared one car. We lived in a one bedroom apartment and we just lived really meagerly. And we chipped away at it. Chip away, chip away, chip away. And about three years in, I was like, Tiff, I love what I'm doing, but I, I wanted more. I really want to go to MIT and start my own business. So we really didn't have the funds to do it. So you basically have to work twice as hard. I was holding down another job while working at night and burning the midnight oil, doing some of the things that I love to do. And it didn't feel like work at the time because I loved doing it. I wanted mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. Love building. So I loved... That's such a common theme. It's like, you know, an observation is that people are afraid to start the thing because they think it's going to be so much work and it's going to be this, I've not, maybe I'm going to use the term famously, famously to whomever knows me. I'm not a hustle porn guy. 
right? Like I used to be all about the, I'm not a hustle porn guy because I don't think that's the right way. But to your point, like it doesn't, when you find that kind of that thing, it's an indicator that it's not the right thing if you're not excited enough about it to kind of, to make that investment. Let me ask you about this quickly. And I'm going to pull us kind of in the, staying along the track you're talking about. One of the things that I really want your take on because you're just such a thoughtful guy. It's interesting. There's this, you have talked about learning from other people, right? And, and kind of, but then at the same time, you talked about like not listening to other people, right? And like not letting that noise get into you. And, and an observation is, you know, one of these maxims that advice that everyone gets is have humility and like other people, you know, have good and valid points and whatever. And then on the other side of that coin, the other part of that duality is don't listen to other people, bet on yourself, like, and make that leap. It's an interesting thing, I think, that most people have kind of struggle with figuring out what maybe that middle ground is of what's the right balance of listening to folks, listening to the feedback as an entrepreneur, as somebody who's building a successful company, has built a successful company, listening to your users and staying close to them with also being willing to say, no, that's not the right way to go about it. How do you think about that duality and how is that kind of something that I, I'm really curious to learn about? Not something I had planned on asking you, but it's just come up. You know, this was something that came up a lot in consulting. And we got training on this in McKinsey because very often you brought in to an underperforming business and you have to go figure out, you have to do a due diligence. You have to figure out what's wrong and what they really need to be doing. And when you talk to people, oh, everything's amazing. I distinctly remember I was at a fab in Pennsylvania and this company was making uh, wafers. They make wafers for basically the switches that go in the back of data servers that the light and, and actually handle communication. And these wafers, they're 300 grand a pop. And McKinsey has brought in, say, we can't make enough wafers. We need more wafers. How do we make more wafers? And you go into the factory and you go start to dig and you're finding stuff everywhere. But we interview people all the time. And we're asking, when you interview people, they're going to say, I do my job the best I can do. And here's why I'm amazing at it. And here's all the things that I do to be amazing at this. But you have to take that and actually match that with what could happen, what could be, how can we look at this different and understand why this person thinks this way versus what we've seen in terms of best practice. So that was kind of my first foray of listening to people and empathizing with them and understanding where they're coming from but having to think critically on what if and how we could change how this could look in a better world. And it's just a problem-solving thought and mentality. I'm naturally a trust but verified person, I have to say too. That's my thing is I've learned to trust more, but I always want to know. I'm curious. I'm curious by nature. And so I ask a lot of questions to figure that out. When starting Shipwell, there were so many headwinds and so much doubt coming from investors, coming from different customers and that nature. And if I would have listened to them, I never would have got started because they all said, don't do it. It's like, no, this idea isn't new. There are other people ahead or this is going to be really hard. You're never going to get someone to do this. We had someone, I saw this happen the other day in our business where this big company, they're like, they'll never buy software. They'll never like I've known this guy for 20 years. He's never going to do this. And in my back of my mind, I'm like, well, why? Why won't this person do this? Keeping them back from doing it. What's the root cause behind that? And guess what? He's buying software now. And he's, he's definitely piloting the system. So hell is frozen over. 
So it's like those things that taught me at a very early age that you, through McKinsey, you've got to really, really dig in, ask the right questions and empathize with someone. But you got to always ask that question, what could this be? What could this look like? Yeah. The optimal question yourself as much as your question others, what they have to say, question yourself. What I'm hearing you say is actually kind of spend that energy being insightful about why. Why you're doing it, why they might be coming from the place they're coming from to really get to the kind of the heart of the matter. Is that a good way to conceptualize it? I believe if I could put a framework behind it, that's probably the best way of kind of breaking it down. But that's the gist of it. I think you nailed it. So let's get into Shippo a little bit. How did you meet Jason? And you've talked a little bit about kind of, look, you had to borrow against your 401k. What would it have meant if Shipwell failed? Well, Shipwell has failed multiple times. People just don't know about it. So I left McKinsey in July of 2016, and I started Shipwell with another co-founder, a very smart guy that I went to school with at MIT. He was also at McKinsey. And we started what the company was called Otter Logic at the time. And because we wanted to disrupt the OTR, Otter market. I like that. And is that domain name still available? Cause I might buy no, that. We own it. Oh, okay. uh, right. No one could stay or sell it because it was a diphthong. So we, we had to rebrand, <laughs> but he had to exit the business after four months because he had a life change in circumstance. And that's one of the things that kills momentum is your, actually the, you, he was the CEO as tech person. We had hired some engineers in Austin and in, in January of 2017, or sorry, December of 2016, Otter Logic was dead. Like my co-founder was gone. Our early enterprise customer that we had been talking with to try to really get on, they basically loved what we did, but didn't have the budget to pay for it. So we didn't have any revenue. We tried to go raise money. At the time, no one was investing in supply chain. The investments at the time were Flexport. They're like, hey, Flexport's going to win this. Like, they're going to win all of this. So. As if there's ever been one winner in anything. But yeah, yeah, that's my favorite thing about VCs. Yeah. Well, that was, I distinctly remember, and I, I won't say the investors on this call, but I distinctly remember having this conversation thinking, these guys don't understand supply chain. They think Flexport's going to win everything. And there's still a massive opportunity here. We just don't have the right story to tell yet. That was my thought process. So January of 2017, I got all of my early engineers, Max and Nick and, and Steve Cronister, who are still with the company. I got them in a room and I, and I wrote on a board in Capital Factory in this, this very dark room. And I'm like, co-founder needs to leave. I'm going to take over as CEO. There's still an opportunity here. Here's our business plan, what we're trying to achieve. Here's what I'm going to go do. I'm going to go find a co-founder that's amazing because I know I can't do this by myself. We're going to go build this thing and show this early product market fit. And then we're going to go and actually race. And everyone in Austin at the time also was like, hey, do you have $500,000 of revenue? I'm not investing if, you're not, if you don't have that kind of traction. I'm like, you guys don't understand seed stage investing. It's a smart co-founder, it's an idea, and it's a big market, which we have. That's what seed is. Yeah. That's what seed is. It's you know, so so at the time. If you want more certainty, go buy bonds. You know, right. like I don't know what I'm gonna tell you. So at the time, I was part of the MIT club there, right? Uh, so Jason Traff was a mentor at Capital Factory and also on an MIT alumni panel. And I met him. He had previous success at Y Combinator, and he looked like he had an awesome background. So 
I went and talked with him and we just immediately hit it off. Like he complimented all of the skills that I didn't have. He had previous success in startup and owning business. He was incredibly articulate and smart. He understood how to get a startup off the ground and go. And I convinced him of the idea. I took him out to drinks at this place called CU29 or 21 in Austin. And I got him almost drunk and basically tried and basically convinced him to say, this is a massive opportunity. I think you would be amazing. The guys would love you uh, that are already here. And so I brought him in for a week just to meet the guys and meet the team and really took over. And at that first time, I'd met a guy at a New Year's party at the time. They were customers of Coyote. And I basically was like, hey, I'm going to build this giant system that gives you complete visibility, connects to all your people, and it gives you superpowers to make smart decisions when you're executing and procuring transportation. So he gave us a shot. We put the first shipment on the platform then. It was a wine shipment. And that was at the same exact time that Jason was joining. And he was helping and being part of that first experience with the team actually calm us all down and know that everything was going to be all right. And so that's where the team really loved working with him. And honestly, that pivotal moment at that time, either to give up when your co-founders left and everything's that's when companies die or just to persist and don't quit and actually go achieve your dreams is really what happened. And I just persisted and found the right person. And that literally changed the trajectory of Shipwell in that moment because... How much do you attribute that to luck versus what you were willing to invest in do? I mean, don't get me wrong. There are elements of luck. Like if you, I've talked with the mint.com CEO, right? at the time. And he will say, look, we had this good idea where every system at the time was doing rule-based accounting to classify transactions. And we didn't have the manpower or the resources to do it. So we used this machine learning way to just classify it for you. It turns out much better solution. I knew that we got lucky and I sold it to Intuit and I got lucky. I was really early on. I didn't really try hard. That's what happened. There are stories like that. But the vast majority of other stories are just persistence, hard work, and really all of those elements that I talked about previously. And I'm not a person to give up, and neither is Jason. Like We're both incredibly persistent and stubborn, and I will never say die. Like It's really easy to quit. I can tell you, like I've, when investors telling you Flexport's going to win everything, or your co-founder walks, or early employees walk, or your first enterprise customer walks, or you have to pivot your business model twice. Like All of these things are roadblocks that you're going to have to overcome. So you have to set your mindset to know that those are going to be there. And you just can't give up and quit. You've got to believe in yourself that you're going to go figure those things out. That's interesting. In the couple minutes that we have left, imposter syndrome, I think, is something that's really powerful. And are you familiar with imposter syndrome? I, like am, the concept? I am familiar with it, definitely. I'm interested in hearing you. Like Of all the people that I've talked to, You've been the most confident in yourself, in what you're capable of, and maybe you're the most self-actualized. I mean, certainly, like Kevin Nolan was someone that I spoke with, and Kevin is an incredibly confident guy. And additionally, like Kevin was like, I'm really great at this thing. Like, this is the thing that I am the best at in the world. And so let me do that thing and then fill in around the edges. You, while I think you have a sense that you're not good at everything. Like I'm getting the impression from the conversation that we've had that you're willing to bet on yourself to get 
as far as you can to reach your ceiling in whatever it is. So I don't know, like, have you ever dealt with imposter syndrome? Do you ever deal with it? How does that factor into confidence if you have? I mean, I think it's natural that everyone kind of have some of this self-doubt on not being smart enough or not being talented enough to go and do certain things. What I realized very quickly, very early on, is that I can't do everything. And I'm going to need really amazing people. That's why I went and found an amazing co-founder and gave him you know, as much equity as I had in the business because I knew that he was going to be just as impactful. And, and I would say that, I mean, taking over the CEO role, you do have imposter syndrome. I mean, I always think coming from B-School and if Jack Welsh ever wanted to come out of retirement and run Shipwell, I would be the first person to raise my hand to say, you know what, I'll go be the chief product officer. And Jack Welsh come in. Because there might be someone that is more skillful and has been there and done that. What I do right now is think about how do I make Shipwell the most successful for all the Shipwellians, our customers and investors. And I'm the right person to go do that right now. But if there's someone better, then I need to get out of their way and have them come in and and really provide that same level of value. It's natural to think like that. I just think I have to, you do need to be humble. You need to kind of think about what you're really good at, your gaps. And then you need to hire the best possible talent and presumably better talent than you in these other areas so that you can act, outperform. And I'm a fan of Ray Dalio's and he has these principles for success. I don't know if you've heard of them, but one of the things that he talks about is trying to find the best talent you can, people smarter for you. And then the true impact and value is when you can match that to the position they were made for in value. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do right now. And that's what I need to do. I need to be the chief engagement officer. I need to get amazing, good people. And I have to know that I'm not perfect and I'm not going to be. I was a good technical person, but I was never a CEO managing 150 plus people in, in 30 plus states in multiple time zones to go change a highly competitive industry with very big personalities. And so I just try to take it all in stride and take it day by day and get the best people I can in those roles. Thanks for joining me today. I think this has been a really great conversation. I've kind of picked up on three themes and I'd just like your quick take on how you think these themes fit. For you, I think there've been three big things is that like, first of all, what's really powered you to get through all of this beyond just sort of like hustle. You know, if you dissect that, the first is kind of taking as much information as you can and then think about it, dissect it, question it, really ask yourself, how does it apply? How does it not apply? And ask yourself the why. The other theme is then planning, like get a plan so that you're not just flailing in the wind, like you're going to attack this in a way that that's structured and then just try shit and see what happens. Like <laughs> at the end of the day, like, cool. So I got the information. I got the best information I could. I put together the best plan that I could with that information. And then you know what? Fuck it. Just give it a go. Those I mean, are the themes that I've kind of picked up from you. What do you think? I think that that would be a good mantra for lots of folks. Is, yeah, sure. Is go out and try it. Like you'll never know. You'll never know unless you try something if it was going to work. You won't. You'll always second guess and doubt yourself. And I, I haven't wanted to live with regrets. But yeah, get a plan together and go and execute and know and set yourself. Have a mindset to know that you're not going to be perfect. No, no strategy survives contact with the enemy. One of my clients said that to me at McKinsey. Everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face is right. not Mike Tyson. Yeah. yeah, and that is very, very true. And so you're just going to learn to adapt and going to do the best you possibly can. 
And it's going to take a little bit of luck. It's going to take amazing talent and expertise. But if you persevere and know that here's how success is built, you will go achieve those things. That's great. Well, Greg, thanks again for jumping on. This was an awesome conversation. I'm really excited to listen back to it and kind of parse it again. So thanks for joining me today, man. How can people get in touch with you or learn more about Shipwell? Well, I'm easy to get in touch with. You can either LinkedIn me or send me an email to greg at shipwell.com or go to our website and take a look. Take a look at Shipwell. It's an amazing company, a lot of awesome folks, and we're up and coming in the space. If you haven't experienced them already, you'll you'll experience us through our customers, or our connections, or some of the data that we're creating in the space. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Founder Studio. A couple quick things before you go. We're proudly hosted on the Logistics of Logistics Network. To hear more content from the industry's top leaders in supply chain and logistics, check out thelogisticsoflogistics.com. And until next time, onward and upward.